You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com. We are sponsored again this week by Simon & Schuster, publishers of Lincoln on the Verge, 13 Days to Washington, by Ted Widmer, which is available now. Ron Chernow, author of acclaimed biographies about Alexander Hamilton and Ulysses S. Grant, has praised Lincoln on the Verge as, quote, loaded with high drama, danger, and plentiful suspense. The train rides take on an almost mythic dimension, representing the democratic revolution that will soon tip the fractious country into a bloody civil war. A riveting piece of history and a first-rate read. Lincoln on the Verge is available now. If your local bookstore is temporarily closed, try ordering it online or at bn.com or Amazon. Also available as a downloadable ebook and audiobook. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to the 320th episode of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Welcome to the podcast. So just to let you know up front, but this week's show is going to be a bit different in that we're going to hit the pause button as far as looking at the action as it's heating up at Gettysburg. And we're going to use this episode to look at a few of the myths that surround the battle. We're going to look at three of them in this show, actually, and they're all associated with things or people that we've already talked about, even though the battle is just getting started there on the morning of July 1st, 1863. So we thought this might be a good time to just take a show and take a look at them. The first myth might not be a myth at all, but it's a topic that a few of you have asked us about, and that topic is shoes. We knew we'd probably need to address this at some point, and well, this is that point. But it has to do with the question of whether the Confederates really went to Gettysburg looking for shoes. Perhaps, like me, you remember learning in school that the reason the battle happened at Gettysburg is because the Confederates went there looking for shoes. But is it true that the largest battle of the Civil War was started simply because a detachment from Robert E. Lee's Army of Northern Virginia was searching for badly needed shoes in the small crossroads town of Gettysburg? Well, in some history books, you won't find any mention of a search for shoes. 
For example, in Noah Andre Trudeau's Gettysburg, A Testing of Courage, he never mentions shoes at all. While Stephen Sears, in his book on Gettysburg, says that Heath's orders to Pettigrew for June 30th specially mentioned shoes. And then as for July 1st, Heath's stated desire was to march to Gettysburg because, according to Sears, quote, he still wanted to get those shoes, end quote. And then there's Ken Burns' wildly popular PBS series on the Civil War, which has encouraged the belief that the Battle of Gettysburg started because the Confederates were searching for shoes. In fact, in the book, based on that documentary, you can find the following statement, quote, The greatest battle ever fought on the North American continent began as a clash over shoes. Okay. Well, perhaps it would be best if we next went straight back to the horse's mouth, so to speak. And what we find is that this whole idea of going to Gettysburg to look for shoes originated with Harry Heath's After Action Battle Report. In it, Heath wrote that he sent Pettigrew to Gettysburg, quote, to obtain supplies, especially shoes. Heath repeated this claim again in 1877 in a letter in the Southern Historical Society papers. In that letter, Heath wrote, quote, Hearing that a supply of shoes was to be obtained in Gettysburg, eight miles distant from Cashtown, and greatly needing shoes for my men, I directed General Pettigrew to go to Gettysburg and get these supplies. End quote. And then, of the subsequent conversation between Pettigrew, Heath, and A.P. Hill, that led to the July 1st advance toward Gettysburg, Heath wrote, quote, About this time, General Hill wrote up. I then said, If there is no objection, I will take my division tomorrow and go to Gettysburg and get those shoes. Hill replied, None in the world. He again repeated the story about the shoes in his memoirs. So the stage was set for the battle, according to Heath, and generations of historians embraced the tale, and generations of American schoolchildren were taught the Battle of Gettysburg started because the Confederates, Confederates went to town looking for shoes. You may have noticed, though, that up until this point in the podcast, we have studiously avoided any mention of a search for shoes, so you might have already guessed where we come down on all of this. Actually, and this is just our two cents worth, but we think there might possibly be a kernel of truth in the story that Heath sent Pettigrew to Gettysburg on June 30th to look for supplies, and perhaps there was a mention of making sure to round up all the shoes that could be found, since the rebels were in constant need of new footgear. Although, like Edwin Coddington in his book, The Gettysburg Campaign, A Study in Command, we also would question the wisdom of Heath sending a brigade of infantry, especially without a cavalry escort, on a 16-mile round trip that day on a foraging expedition, when Gordon's Confederates of Yule's Corps had just been through town a few days earlier. But whatever the truth behind Heath's motivation in sending Pettigrew to Gettysburg on the 30th, we seriously doubt whether it was to, quote, unquote, get those shoes, that 15,000 Confederates marched to Gettysburg the next day on July 1st. 
It borders on the absurd to think that A.P. Hill would send two-thirds of his division off that day in search of shoes. It's much more likely that Hill's reason for sending such a large force to Gettysburg that day was almost certainly the reason he later stated in his official report, that is, given Pettigrew's story of an enemy presence of unknown composition and size in the town, A.P. Hill wanted to find out precisely what was in his front. Now, we have no idea why Harry Heath would choose in later years to stress this idea about going to Gettysburg in search of shoes, but we also have no idea why Heath, who had orders not to get involved in serious fighting at Gettysburg on July 1st, chose to plunge ahead that morning anyway, until he had quite an unlooked-for mess on his hands. The last thing we'll say here is that mess had nothing to do with looking for shoes, and everything to do with Heath's poor judgment. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. History isn't black and white, yet too often it's presented as such. Grey History, the French Revolution is a long-form history podcast dedicated to exploring the ambiguities and nuances of the past. By contrasting both the experiences of contemporaries and the conclusions of historians, Grey History dives into the detail and unpacks one of the most important and disputed events in human history. From a revolution based on hope and liberty to its descent into the infamous Reign of Terror, there's plenty to discuss and plenty of grey to explore. One can't understand the modern world without understanding the French Revolution. So if you're looking for your next long-form, binge-worthy history podcast, one recommended by universities and loved by enthusiasts, then check out Grey History, the French Revolution today. Or simply search for the French Revolution. Our second myth has to do with firearms. You see, there's a persistent misconception that John Buford's Union cavalrymen fought at Gettysburg on July 1st, armed with a seven-shot lever-action Spencer repeating rifle. For example, Shelby Foote, in his three-volume history of the Civil War, wrote the following, quote, Buford's two brigades were formidable in their own right, being equipped with a new seven-shot Spencer carbine which enabled a handy trooper to get off 20 rounds a minute as compared to his muzzle-loading adversary, 
who would be doing well to get off four in the same span. Foote's account is just one of a number of Gettysburg narratives that repeat the erroneous claim that Buford's cavalrymen were armed with Spencer repeating weapons on July 1st. Even Edward Longacre, in his book The Cavalry at Gettysburg, mistakenly reports that Buford's troopers carried Spencer's. However, D. Alexander Watson, in an article in Gettysburg Magazine number 15, and Eric Wittenberg, in one of the appendixes at the end of his book, The Devil's to Pay, John Buford at Gettysburg, both clearly and convincingly show that there's no credible evidence to suggest any of Buford's troopers carried Spencer repeating firearms into battle at Gettysburg on July 1st. Watson references the Union Cavalry's ordnance returns for the quarter ending June 30, 1863. The returns show that in the eight regiments of the two brigades involved in the fighting at Gettysburg on July 1st, the majority of troopers carried Sharps 52 caliber single-shot breech-loading carbines. There were also Smiths, Burnsides, Gallagher's, Merrill's, and a few Ballard's, but no Spencer's. The Spencer was a formidable weapon, enabling soldiers to lay down a tremendous rate of fire. A man could fire seven rounds as fast as he could pull the trigger and eject spent rounds. Its use during the war led to the oft-repeated story of the dejected Confederate soldier being taken captive who would complain to the Spencer-wielding Yankees that it wasn't a fair fight because they loaded in the morning and then fired all day. Even though they didn't carry Spencers at Gettysburg, the Sharps and other models of breech-loading carbines carried by Buford's troopers still made them the best-armed soldiers on the battlefield on July 1st. Those breech-loading carbines still required the cavalrymen to load each shot using paper cartridges, but an efficient trooper could get off five to seven rounds a minute, while his muzzle-loading infantry opponent could expect to fire three rounds a minute during combat. What the cavalry's carbine traded for that more rapid rate of fire was a shorter range. As Wittenberg writes, quote, The lack of Spencer rifles makes what Buford and his determined troopers accomplished on July 1st all the more remarkable. His heavily outnumbered troopers demonstrated the effectiveness of the defense designed and implemented by Buford. The rapid fire of the breech-loading carbines carried by his troopers more than compensated for their lack of effective range and enabled the Union horsemen to hold off Heath's Confederate infantry just long enough for Reynolds and the First Corps to arrive on the battlefield. For our third myth, we're going to have to jump a little ahead in the storyline, but just a little, since it has to do with the death of John Reynolds, and that'll be happening in fairly short order here in our story of the battle. But at any rate, you'll often hear it said, even though there's not one iota of credible evidence to support such a claim, that when Reynolds was struck down there on July 1st, he was killed by a Confederate sharpshooter. For example, in Glenn Tucker's book, High Tide at Gettysburg, he writes, quote, 
Reynolds, expecting support, had turned in the saddle to look toward the crest of the ridge behind him. It was 10.15 a.m. He was struck in the back of the neck by a mini-ball fired by a marksman from a tree on the bank of the stream. And then, in the beautifully illustrated special edition that Time put out for the 150th anniversary of the battle, which was no doubt picked up by untold numbers of people, you read, quote, As he turned in his saddle to urge on the second Wisconsin, a mini-ball took him behind the ear, and Reynolds fell dead from his horse. Historians are uncertain as to who fired the bullet that killed Reynolds. The prime suspect is a Confederate sharpshooter. Not surprisingly, with the death of so notable a figure as a Federal Corps commander, there were Confederate soldiers who stepped forward claiming they had fired the shot that killed Reynolds. What is surprising is that it took so long for anyone to make such a claim. It wasn't until early in the 20th century that former Sergeant Ben Thorpe of the 55th North Carolina told a group of visitors from Reynolds' hometown of Lancaster, Pennsylvania, that he, in fact, had fired the fatal shot. According to Thorpe's tale, a rebel officer had spotted a Union general on horseback across the way, positioning a battery, and ordered Thorpe, a sharpshooter, to put a bullet in him. It was a long shot, and Thorpe confessed it took him three tries to hit his target, but he did so. An article about Thorpe's claim appeared in a November 1902 issue of a Lancaster newspaper, and from there the story gained traction through repeated retellings over the years. Thorpe's most serious challenge didn't come until the 1913 Golden Anniversary reunion at the battlefield, when E.T. Boland of Company F of the 13th Alabama offered his own version of the death of Reynolds. Quote, I and John Hendricks of my company were about 80 or 100 yards from where General Reynolds' monument is now located, a few paces from the woods. A squad of officers or soldiers dashed in just where the monument stands. John Hendricks fired, and one of them fell. He asked me if I saw him empty that saddle, end quote. Boland said he wanted to go on record because, quote, it has been claimed that a North Carolina soldier killed him, end quote. But, Boland insisted, there were no such troops nearby when Reynolds was shot. Well, needless to say, such unsubstantiated accounts have colored our understanding of Reynolds' death down to the present day. However, most modern historians agree that it's highly improbable that John Reynolds was singled out as a target, and it's much more likely that he was killed by a random shot from a Confederate soldier in Archer's Brigade. The shot may have come from a volley, since some of Reynolds' staff and horses nearby were also hit. In any case, if you visit Gettysburg today, the monument indicating where Reynolds was killed is believed to fairly accurately mark the location where he was shot about 1040 on the morning of July 1st, although some historians believe the actual spot was a bit closer to the present Park Road. At 8 a.m. on July 4th, one day after the end of the Battle of Gettysburg, John Reynolds returned home to Lancaster for the last time. When the funeral party set out for the cemetery shortly before noon, 
they found the streets filled with people waiting to pay their respects. With flags at half-staff and the buildings along the route cloaked in black, the flag-draped casket was taken to Lancaster Cemetery and, after a brief ceremony, buried in the family plot. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is A Field Guide to Gettysburg, Experiencing the Battlefield Through Its History, Places, and People by Carol Reardon and Tom Bossler. Don't forget you can find a full list of all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. We wanted to let you know that just this morning we released members episode number 104. We're still working our way through the story of Jeb Stewart's ride to Gettysburg. And we want to thank the newest members of the Strawfoot Brigade who went over to Patreon this past week and signed up to support the podcast. And that would be Calvin, Chris, Doug, Joyce, George, Michael, Damien, Jay, Dane, Russell, and Travis. And then thanks to Ian, Jack, and Travis for their donations. Thanks, guys. We appreciate your support of the show. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Rich and I do hope that you'll join us again next time. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Hey everyone, just a reminder that we were sponsored again this week by Simon & Schuster, publishers of Lincoln on the Verge, 13 Days to Washington by Ted Widmer, which is available now. Ron Chernow, author of acclaimed biographies about Alexander Hamilton and Ulysses S. Grant, has praised Lincoln on the Verge as, quote, loaded with high drama, danger, and plentiful suspense. The train rides take on an almost mythic dimension, representing the democratic revolution that will soon tip the fractious country into a bloody civil war. A riveting piece of history and a first-rate read. Lincoln on the Verge is available now. If your local bookstore is temporarily closed, try ordering it online or at bn.com or Amazon. Also available as a downloadable ebook and audiobook.